The passage for the sermon today is 1 Samuel 18 and 19. If you'll turn in your Bibles, 1 Samuel 18 and 19 is our passage for this morning. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private, and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went, along with his men, and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, 
Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fell before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped. He came to Samuel at Ramah and told, all, told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in understanding the word that is before us, in applying this word to our life, in seeing the scenarios that we're in on a daily basis where your word is authoritative, 
where it's helpful and instructive, where it trains us in righteousness, where it keeps us in faith. Father, speak in place of me to us, your people. As we attempt this morning to feast on your word, we pray you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are occasions where you find yourselves on opposite sides of a conflict from someone who might otherwise be considered your friend. Maybe this is a family member. Maybe it's a brother or sister inside the church. And maybe the issue at hand is theological. Maybe it's a a family affair. Maybe it's just a difference of opinion. But for whatever reason, you find yourself diametrically opposed to someone, not necessarily because they've committed some great sin against you, but because of significant differences for one reason or another. And yet, in any conflict, each party considers himself or herself to be in the right. 160-some years ago, a war was fought in this country against fellow countrymen north and south. Men who would otherwise hold many things in common, namely citizenship, were at each other's throats fighting bloody campaigns over very significant issues. I don't want to minimize the issues. They were very significant. And while there was no man without his flaws, arguably the best president in U.S. history was Abraham Lincoln, who oversaw this bloody conflict between the states. It would have been easy, I think, for Lincoln in his position to look at the South and say that because God opposes slavery, that God was necessarily on the side of the North. That's not what he said. Instead, he said this, In great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be and one must be wrong. I don't normally think politicians are the best ones to turn to for theological education or even questions. But even a blind hog finds an acorn every once in a while, as my mom used to say. I think here Lincoln finds it to some extent. He says, both parties consider themselves to be acting in accordance with the will of God. If you ask anyone on the north, they would say, well, yeah, of course, we're fighting on God's side. And, and, and then if you ask the ones on the south, of course, we're fighting on God's side. But it's entirely possible, Lincoln says, both are wrong. And it's probable, at the very least, one of them is wrong. In our passage this morning, David finds himself through really no fault of his own, on opposing sides with the king of Israel. How do you like that? Being an enemy to your own king. You've sworn allegiance to this king, and yet you find yourself as his enemy. That's not a great enemy to have. But then the question we have to ask is, which one is in the right? How do we know which one is in the right? And then... How do we understand this conflict in a New Testament context as we apply it to our own 
lives. In other words, we at some point have to ask the question, is God on our side? And if so, how do I know? If you'll recall in our previous passage that we looked at last week, David was facing the mighty Goliath in battle. The battle lines were drawn across the valley of Elah, and he was standing there, and, and the militaries were standing there, both from the Philistines on one end and, and the Israelites on the other. And in the middle, right there in the middle of the valley, was Goliath, the mighty Philistine, standing in opposition, defying the armies of the living God. And the rest of Israel is crouching in fear over on their side because Goliath has this imposing stature about him. And it's told to us in the text that he has a breastplate on that's 100 pounds in weight. His spear is the size of a weaver's beam and the tip of the spear is 14 pounds. And David decides he's going to go into battle against this giant Philistine and he takes up, uh, well, what might be considered weapons in some context, but certainly not here. He was armorless, he was swordless, he was spearless, and he was helmetless. But he did have a slingshot, and he had faith that understood that when a man stands there defying the armies of the living God, he's actually standing there defying God himself. And so for Goliath's defiance, the Lord was going to end his life. And David had the faith that he was going to be the instrument through which God ended this giant's life. So David killed his enemy on the battlefield with one stone and one sling, and then took his sword and cut off the giant's head. The Lord's people then pursued the Philistines and killed them in battle, thanks to the victory that God provided through his king. Now, coming immediately on the heels of that victory, David is now facing a very different enemy. In fact, it's an enemy that's supposed to be his friend. This enemy is also a giant. Maybe he's not nine feet tall. But he is, we're told in the text, a head taller than the rest of Israel. So he is tall. Perhaps he's not threatening to enslave all of Israel like the giant Goliath was. But, as we've seen in this passage, he is wanting to kill God's anointed and Israel's future king. In fact, he's wanting to take his spear, like Goliath, and finish the job that Goliath failed to do by pinning David to the wall. So in reality, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel... And chapters 18 and 19 are all closely connected to one another. And they're a tale of David facing two very different kinds of enemies. And taking a very different approach to each. One is defeated on the field of battle simply by trusting God and taking his slingshot and bearing a stone in the forehead of the giant that God commanded him to do. The second one is defeated in a different way, though requiring as much, if not more, faith than it did to stand against Goliath on the field of battle. But you see, the battlefield in 18 and 19 is not the Valley of Elah. It's not fought with sword and spear. It's fought with political savvy. It's fought with patience. It's fought with 
trust that the Lord is good and that He's true to His promises. There's so much text that we're covering this morning. We're, we're certainly not going to go through every single detail. Don't worry, we won't be. We'll, you'll make dinner, all right? I can't guarantee about lunch, but I know you'll make dinner. <laughs> but what we're going to do instead is really look at this from two perspectives, kind of. Almost like looking through a pair of bifocals. We're going to look at this from one side and then look at it from another. First, we're going to see this from the perspective of Saul and then from the perspective of David to see what point the author is really making here. What he's really trying to say is true about David in his fight against Saul. And then finally, at the very end, we'll see how this passage applies to us in the life of a Christian. First, we see here on the, maybe whatever you want to say, this is the, either the bifocal or the top lens, I don't know, but we see that God is against Saul. It's very clear that God is against Saul. This part of the story takes place immediately. Chapters 18 and 19 follows immediately on the heels of what happened last week, so much so that in verse 1 we see it tells us that Jonathan forms a bond with David as soon as he was finished speaking to Saul, which happened in the previous chapter. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that some in today's Bible culture have taken Jonathan's relationship with David in a way that is clearly not intended by the biblical author. I think it's, it's worth mentioning this only because it is so prevalent, especially outside the church walls, that people interpret this relationship to be something different than what's intended, something much more sinful, let's say. I won't go into much more detail, but some of you are tracking with me and that suffices, all right? The only comment I think that's fitting uh, to, to uh, combat that or to really uh, comment about that is to say that it tends to be that the minds of the sexually perverted tend to read everything in terms of sexual perversion. You know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, in other words. But that's all we'll say about that. Because of David in his recent success against the giant, Saul sees there's some uh, uh, clout to this guy. He's actually got some, something, some, some mojo going for him, working for him. So what does he do? He sets him, he sets David over the military, and, and everywhere he goes, David is having the same kind of success he was having with, with Goliath on the field of battle. In fact, so much victory is David having that David becomes something of a legend around Israel. And everywhere he goes, people are singing about him. We've, we've even got ladies coming out dancing in front of him. He's become one of the Beatles. John, Paul, George, Ringo, and David. He's really famous. They're coming out singing to him and they, as he goes from town to town. In fact, we see in verse 6, if you'll look with me in 18.6, as they were coming home... When David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of the cities of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David 
his ten thousands. Now, we've seen Saul in the past not be so keen on the spotlight. You remember when he was anointed as king, he went and hid among the baggage when he was being introduced to the rest of Israel because he, it seemed like he really didn't like too much of the spotlight. But here comes this little punk winning a few little battles, and he thinks he's somebody, and all the people think he's somebody, and it brings out a little bit of different side in Saul. He doesn't like the attention that David is getting. And this is the first way that we see that God is against Saul. And we see it in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 18. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. This is one of two times we see evidence that God is against David. I mean, against Saul. Is that a harmful spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. The second one we see is in 19.9. And the results of both is that he, he takes this spear... And he tries to pin David to the wall with it. Now you might be thinking to yourself, why would the Lord bring David, who is the anointed king, into the presence of Saul, and then at the time when David was there, send a harmful spirit to Saul so that he would get angry and try to pin David to the wall with it? doesn't seem to make much sense. And there might be a thousand possible answers to that question, some of which we may never know the answer to. But which ones do we actually see in the text? Well, first, remember that this evil spirit that came upon Saul was judgment on Saul for his disobedience. The reason that Saul had an evil spirit from the Lord come to him and God's own spirit removed from him was because he had sinned twice against the Lord and for that God had removed his spirit and sent to him an evil spirit. So first thing you got to remember is that this spirit that's coming to Saul is judgment on Saul. But second, and this might seem a little unconventional to you, but the Lord is often unconventional. This is also God's way of proving David. Sort of like, uh, I'm a big fan of the great British baking show, you know. And they have to stick the bread in the drawer to prove and let the, let the dough rise. This is like God sticking his future king into the warming drawer and letting him prove by bringing him close to Saul's court. You remember, it's told to us specifically by Saul's men that this evil spirit is coming to Saul and it needs to be soothed. And the way that this evil spirit is going to be soothed is, hey, I know there is a little kid out there who has the spirit of God with him. Let's bring him in here and have him play in the king's court. Bring him close to Saul, and as he plays, it will soothe the temptations of that evil spirit. So David essentially gets a front row seat to the kingdom to watch it unfold. 
And as such, he builds a relationship with Saul, not only becoming his son-in-law, as we'll see in just a minute, but then is also sent off to battle. He, he has a lot, in other words, he gets a lot of insight into the kingdom. And this is very clearly God's intention. So there might be a billion different answers to why it is that God does this, brings David close, sends a harmful spirit to Saul. But as we'll see in coming chapters, it becomes even clearer over time. This is God's way of proving His king, of testing His mettle. So we know, first, God is against Saul because he is thwarted by an evil spirit from the Lord. But second, we also know that God is against Saul because he's thwarted by his own children. Everything that he tries to do, his children step in to stop him. There are two relationships that David has in these two chapters that are very significant in his connection to Saul. First is obviously his friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son, and the heir apparent, essentially, to the throne. We'll see him in a second. But second is his relationship with Michael, Saul's daughter. And that will be weird for me to say throughout this story. (laughs) But remember, the daughter of Saul was one of the promises that was made to David. When the soldiers were around talking about Goliath, he was out there, and they were saying, you know, what was going to happen when if somebody would go out there? One of the promises for the person that defeats Goliath was that the, the king would give him his very daughter. And so this was a promise that perhaps maybe it was conjecture by the, by the soldiers or, or maybe it was just a reward that David hadn't collected on yet. But eventually Saul offers David his oldest daughter. But then he finds out she's already taken. Saul apparently is well informed of all his daughter's movements, I guess. But essentially he, he's informed, okay, well, she's already taken. i got to move down to the next one. And, and so he moves on to Michael and he finds out wouldn't you know that Michael happens to really love David anyway? This is the only time in the Bible it's ever stated that a woman who is given in marriage to somebody actually loves him. It's interesting. So it's a match made in heaven is essentially what we're saying. David's concern, obviously, when, he, when it comes to the marriage of Saul's daughter is that he can't... How, I'm, I'm, you know I'm nothing, right? Like he reiterates this to Saul over again. Uh, you know I'm, I'm not anything. In other words, I'm poor. I don't come from money. I don't have the money to pay the bride price for the bride. But you see, Saul doesn't want money. What he wants, and, and, and he doesn't even really care about David as his son-in-law. What he wants is to kill David. And so he tells him, here's the price that you need to pay. I don't want money. I want what any future father-in-law would want. A hundred foreskins of my enemy. So Saul has clearly devised this plan so that he can kill David. He's going to go out onto the field of battle and encounter some very unwilling participants in the Philistines who are going to put him to death. But then look at verse 21. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. Now Saul isn't trying to fulfill any obligations, as he said. He's trying to make sure that David dies at the hands of a hundred Philistines. He's laying a trap for him. But the trap doesn't work because David, in his zealousness to impress Saul, I guess, brings back two hundred. They apparently fall easily to him. 
And we see in verse 28, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. But then on two occasions, Saul's plan to kill David is thwarted by these two children, Jonathan and Michael. First, Saul tells his desires to his children. He makes them public. He makes them known. In chapter 19, he tells Jonathan and all the men around him that what he plans to do, he wants David dead. All the things that I've tried up until now, even sending him into battle against a hundred Philistines, didn't work. I want him dead. Somebody needs to help me. But what do we find out at the beginning of chapter 19 but that, that Jonathan is more loyal to David than he is to his own father. What are the odds of that? First, he tells David in verse 2, Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. He's going to be a mole. Jonathan temporarily talks Saul out of homicide. He goes to Saul. They execute this plan perfectly. And, he, and since David has not sinned, and since he has killed Goliath, he tells Saul, look, you can't do this. So Saul makes amends with David, and he has him come back. But as soon as David goes out to war and conquers the Philistines, there's another harmful spirit of the Lord that comes into Saul, and he tries again to kill David. This time, it's Michael that intervenes and warns David, look, if you stay here overnight, my father's going to kill you, so you've got to sneak out the window. And she covers him up by uh, the old uh, pillow under the sheets trick that every teenager has been using every day since. So David escapes because of Michael's warning. We've seen God send a spirit to thwart Saul's plan, but now he uses Saul's own children to thwart Saul's plan. But finally... Saul is thwarted by the very Spirit of God. Not lowercase a Spirit of God, lowercase s, but the capital Spirit of God. David flees from Saul out the window at the advice of Michael, and he goes straight to Samuel at Ramah, and he tells him, he tells his parent, essentially, what Samuel has, or what, what Saul has tried to do. And Samuel hides him at Naoth. And when Saul gets wind of, uh, of where it is that, he, that David has gone, he sends messengers to go take David by force, to go read him his Miranda rights and put him under arrest, in a sense. But what happens when the messengers get down there is that the Spirit of God falls upon the messengers and instead of reading David his rights and putting him under arrest, they essentially prophesied. Now what they exactly said, we don't know, but essentially they become possessed by the Spirit of God and instead of uttering falsehood on behalf of Saul, they utter truth on behalf of David and they can't carry out their appointed tasks. Three times he tries to do this. And every time it's found to be wanting. So finally, the fourth time he says, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And so Saul decides he's going to go down there, except this time 
what happens. He gets down there to read David the riot act and put him under arrest. And the Holy Spirit falls on Saul, strips him naked, and he begins to prophesy. Isn't that the strangest thing you've ever seen in the text? There's some strange things in the Old Testament, but here is something really strange. And then at the end, in verse 24 of chapter 19, what do we get but people saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? Have you heard that before? That was said before when Saul was anointed king of Israel, remember. But, but the time when it was said of Saul originally... Samuel had anointed Saul, and he gave him a sign. He said, these things are going to happen to you when you go back into town, just to prove that this anointing was actually true, that you did actually become king over Israel. And one of those is that you're going to walk into a circle of prophets, and you're going to begin prophesying yourself. And people are going to say of you, is Saul also among the prophets? So it seems as though this saying is Saul also among the prophets, became one of those colloquial sayings that people said when something turned out like they didn't expect. Right? We have these idioms all the time that we say that we have no idea where they came from. We just say them, and they don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, uh, the British are famous for saying, Bob's your uncle. You know, such and such happened, and then, then Bob's your uncle. Like, it just turned out, and then it just happened. Right? Where does that come from? Who knows? It seems like this saying, is Saul also among the prophets, has become one of those sayings. But look at what's happened here. Originally, it was because Saul was anointed king, and they're identifying the Holy Spirit has filled Saul. But look at what's happened now. Instead of using it in honor of Saul, it's used in his humiliation. Here he is standing naked before people, prophesying, in the name of the Lord, and it's clear that the Spirit has descended on him, and people are going, well, how ironic is this? Is not Saul also among the prophets? But it's used in a turn. So it becomes clear, the author is making it clear, over the course of this text, that God is opposed to Saul. But it's also clear, if we're looking through the other lens of the bifocal, that the Lord is with David. The Lord is with David. First of all, the author explicitly says just that three times in this text. Look at verse 12. Saul was afraid because why? The Lord was with him. That is David. Look at verse 14, just two verses later. David had success for the Lord was with him. Look at verse 28 of chapter 18. Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. You understand what the author is telling you here is that the central lens that you are to look through and view this passage through is that the Lord is with David. And this is the reason that he's having success and that Saul is having such failure. The Lord is with David and he has departed from Saul. Why is it that Saul keeps coming up short in his attempts to kill David? Because the Lord has been removed from Saul. Why is it that David seems to find success wherever he goes? Because the Lord is with David. So when you look through that primary lens in this text, David goes out and he kills 200 Philistines instead of the hundred that is required of him. It starts to make more sense 
the Lord is with David, granting him success. He's informed of Saul's plots ahead of time so that he can escape both by Jonathan and by Michael. Why? Because the Lord was with David and granted him safe passage. The spear never could quite pin David to the wall. you got to assume that somebody who's sitting there listening to somebody playing the liar has the tactical advantage to be able to kill this guy. And yet, he never can seem to pin David to the wall. Why? Because the Lord is with David. Throughout this passage, the lens that we're to look through is that the Lord is granting David the success that he's having. But you don't have to be explicitly told this by the author. Just looking at the righteous behavior of David and the others in the story, you can also tell that the Lord was with David. What do we see second? We see he he faithfully fulfills his obligations without falling into Saul's traps. Everything that David does, he faithfully fulfills his obligations without falling into the traps that Saul sets for him. That's also how we know that the Lord is with David. Saul lays a number of traps for him throughout the story. He makes him go into battle with the Philistines. Puts him his head over the military. He, he, and and a, a tactic that David's going to use much later on when he, when he sends, sending Uriah into battle, he tries to do with David. He brings him close, tries to kill him with a spear on a couple of occasions. He sends some other men to try to kill him. Now this is merely just a general observation more than it is explicitly stated in the text by the author. But where Saul sends David, David goes. He has no problem obeying Saul even though he knows this is the same man that tried to pin me to the wall with a spear. He's obeying his king. He's submitting to the authority that God has placed over his head. In everything that he's doing, he's obeying the Lord. And he always comes up successful. Saul sends him to war. He goes and is successful. Saul gives him command over men. He leads them. In all the praise David earns, he's never accused of being arrogant or cutting out his own press clippings and nailing them to his refrigerator door. He brings David near, tries to kill him. But what does David do? He gives him another chance. He's tried to kill him once. He he comes into his court again and continues to play. He continues to faithfully serve. And yet Saul is convinced that the Lord is with David because no matter how many snares he lays for David, David doesn't fall. He faithfully fulfills his obligations without falling into Saul's traps and yet all the while submitting to the godly authority that God has placed over his head. Third, we know that the Lord was with David because the old prince recognizes the new prince. Look at this. Jonathan, who was the son of Saul and was the heir to the throne of David, not only loves David, the author tells us his soul was knit to the soul of David, and he loved David as if it was his own soul, but he tells us in verse 3, look at verse 3 of chapter 18, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now you have to understand what what Jonathan is doing here more than merely on the surface. Seems like such an honor that the prince gave his own armor and his own weaponry 
to David. But if you'll remember a few chapters ago, the Philistines had taken captive all the people who produced weapons in Israel. They had removed all the weapons from Israel. They had removed all the blacksmiths from Israel. So we don't know how close in connection this chapter is with that one, but suffice it to say that at the very least, weaponry was rare in Israel. And here is the crown prince not only giving David his weapons, but he's also giving him some of the only weapons in all of Israel. Because Saul and Jonathan were the only ones to have them. So Jonathan giving David his own weaponry is an incredible act of faith, and it's more than mere respect. He's acknowledging that David is the rightful owner to the prince's armor. That's significant. But most of all, we know that the Lord is with David because David remains blameless in what he does. David remains blameless in what he does. This is central to Jonathan's argument to persuade Saul not to kill David at the beginning of 19, verse 4. Read it with me. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Jonathan's message to Saul is, look, David is innocent. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, the Lord has granted salvation to us through him. His blood is innocent. David is blameless. That's a compelling case to say that David is acting the right way in the midst of this trial that has been brought to him. So the message of these two chapters that the author is driving home is that Saul's attempt to kill God's king will always be found fruitless because the Lord is with David. Any attempt that Saul makes on his life will be found fruitless because the Lord is with David. Now the irony of this story is that it's a prototype of a very repetitive story that happens throughout the Scriptures, both Old Testament and New. Saul's actions here seem to be a model for the way Israel will respond to anyone God sends with the truth. To anyone that He sends for their good. If we flash forward to the New Testament, Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen, who was full of grace, is now preaching a sermon against the Jews. He rehearses the story that Israel has walked through over the centuries. And he goes through, as he goes through this story, he starts with the earliest of fathers. He goes back to the days of Joseph. And he says, do you remember what happened with Joseph? Do you remember what took place there? Joseph was sold into slavery by the other 11 tribes. That's what happened. Your people, your forefathers, sold Joseph the righteous one 
into slavery. That's what Stephen said. Then he goes to Moses in the wilderness. Do you remember why Moses fled from Egypt? He was in Pharaoh's house, but do you remember why he fled in Egypt? Because he tried to intervene between two Hebrews and they accused him of murder, and that's why he fled. You accused Moses of murder. And then he says, not only that, Moses came back to rescue you out of Egypt, and as he's leading you through the wilderness, do you know what you did the whole time? Your forefathers griped against Moses. But finally, he gets to the end of his sermon in chapter 7 of Acts, in verse 51, and he says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You understand Stephen's question? Rehearsing Israel's history? Look at this. It's a repetitive story. It seems every time God sends to you the person that He wants to be for your good, you try to put Him to death. You try to kill Him. And of course, Jesus becomes that ultimate example. So Saul's pursuit of the true, righteous King David merely becomes one tooth in this repetitive cog that continues to turn throughout the Old Testament and into the New because of the hard-heartedness on the part of God's people. But you understand it culminated on a hill called Golgotha, where the true king of David's line didn't run from the people that tried to kill him. In fact, he tells his disciples, no one takes my life. I lay it down. And there on Golgotha, he allows himself to be caught and skewered by nails and spear. They pin him not to the wall, but to the cross. But you understand, God was with his king. And so the plan that was brought to bear on the cross worked out for the good of God's people and for the good of his king and thwarted those who would seek to do him ill. So the attack of the enemy in the crucifixion of Christ was ultimately fruitless for them. As a result, in his act of atonement for his people, what he brought to us was forgiveness for all those who by faith confess Christ as Lord and trust Him to pardon their sins. You see, what has happened on the cross is that God has installed His King once and for all, this time allowing Him to be caught and killed. But it became for the benefit of all of us. So now the question is not whether or not God is for us. Because it has been answered with a resounding yes through the king who was caught and killed. Through Christ, the answer is yes, God is for us. So it's a terrible question now to ask, is God for me? Now, because of Christ, the question has to actually be turned differently. The question is now, who are you for? Which side are you on? Are you on the ones who pierced him? Who nailed him to the wall? Or to the cross, as it were? 
Whose side are you on? Are you on God's side? Are you actually fighting for God? Abraham Lincoln has another quote that turns this phrase precisely. He says, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. When David fought Goliath, it's easy to see what he, he was to do. And David sets a pattern to some extent, for all of those who would follow after Christ. Certainly, we saw last week how David is a forerunner for Christ. How he goes into the field of battle and takes down the giant Goliath on behalf of all his people, just as Christ goes to the cross to take down our sin for us on our behalf. But also David is setting a pattern for all those who would follow after Christ. In the battle against Goliath, he's setting a pattern for us that by faith we must also follow and do war with sin. We talked about this last week. But what sort of pattern is being set for us here? Well, you see, it's easy when we say David's setting a pattern for us there against Goliath. You've got to go with, with sling in your hand and be ready to throw that, that stone at your enemies. And, and we see Jesus walking into the temple and turning over the tables and we go, man, I like righteous indignation Jesus. Amen, somebody. Don't you love being the one on the high horse that gets to go in and tell everybody else where to stick it? I like being that guy. I can follow that guy. All right, give me a sword. I'm ready to go into battle and tell everybody else what they can do. But what about the David that follows in 18 and 19 who has to submit and has to follow even when it's going to get really hard? What about the David that now has to go in and fight a different enemy which is supposed to be his friend. What about the time for you when you go into the church and the person you're sitting next to, you're not entirely fond of? No, that never happens in the church, does it? The person across the aisle that you've got your differences with. Don't I have the right to be the righteous? Can I take the stone and just fling it at his head? No, not if you want to be on God's side. How is it that I fight people that seem like they should be inside my camp? Well, there's a multitude of things we could probably say about that, but coming straight from the text, if you're fighting with gossip and slander and backbiting and unholy confrontation and anger and bitterness and trying to get other people on your side, then you can guarantee one thing is for certain, you are not on God's side. He set a standard for His people to follow. And it's the fruit of the Spirit. But isn't it so tempting sometimes that we go around other people that we like and go, you know what I really hate about this person? We get other people on our side. I don't think that's what 
fighting for God actually looks like, not in 18 and 19, certainly. Are other brothers and sisters around you telling you, hey, knock it off, like Jonathan and like Michael are telling their own father? Hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Then I can guarantee you one thing. If other people are telling you, your brothers and sisters are telling you, this is not right. I can guarantee you one thing. You might be fighting on somebody's side, but it sure isn't God's. He has set a standard for His people to follow. They are to be led by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. David sets a model for how followers of Jesus should fight in God-honoring ways. The Spirit of the Lord is with him, and what that means is we find him responding in particular. What You can guarantee one thing. If a harmful spirit had come to David in the same sense that it came to Saul, do you think he would find success in the places where he finds it? Do you think he would be acting the way that he's acting when he goes in places? Do you think he would act with such patience when it comes to submitting to Saul's authority? You can bet not. But if the Spirit of the Lord that is in us is the same Spirit that has fallen on David, how is it then that we should respond in regards to our enemies? Notice that throughout this entire run where Saul and David are at odds with one another, he never reaches out his hand to attack Saul because he recognizes his authority. He cuts off his robe and he feels bad about it. But that's the extent of it. He never utters a bad word against Saul. How does this inform us? If we also are followers after Christ, who has set for us a pattern of the kind of war we engage in, the one that set that pattern went willingly to the cross and didn't utter a word on his own behalf. Consider what that says to Christ's community, the church that he founded. What does that mean for the way we behave in regards to our enemies? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray for clarity. We pray for understanding and wisdom and help. So many temptations around us to contravene your word, to change it, to alter it, to do something different. To hear the words inside us, in our own head and heart, from your word telling us, echoing, reverberating, telling us to repent, follow Christ, submit, be at peace with one another. And yet it's so difficult sometimes. I pray that you would give us aid, give us help. Help us to follow after Christ in the pattern that he has set for us. In Jesus' name, amen.